Hi, this is Ethan Gilsdorf, author of Fantasy Freaks and Gaming Geeks, and I am thrilled that you are listening to the Save or Die podcast. You burst through the door. You find a small room filled with gold and jewels and a red dragon. He starts to breathe. Save or die. everybody it's save or die episode 99 the penultimate episode i hope i hope it's not the penultimate episode well it's penultimate in that episode 100 is the ultimate i would think okay not the ending episode centennial penultimate i see Ah, i can't okay (laughs) it would be so much smarter if i could pronounce it but we know what you mean hey this is dm mike and who Obviously needs work on his centennialness. And with me is DM Liz. There is no Liz. There is only Zool. Hail Zool. Hail Zool. Don't hail Zool. <laughs> DM Jim. Are you the gatekeeper? <laughs> no. Hi. <laughs> Hello there. And intrepid author, investigator, reporter, and five-time rodeo champion, John Peterson. <laughs> Hello! Thanks again for having me. Thanks for coming on. Like I said, two more uh, stamps to your card and you get a free entree. <laughs> Is this a, a North Texas con, uh, you know, chicken dinner or something? That <laughs> Exactly. From the very best kiosk in the corner of the, of the, of the con. North Texas, it would be chicken fried steak dinner. <laughs> true, true. Smothered in gravy. Anyway, and as coincidence would have it, and th- you guys can back me up on this. This episode was planned months ago. But this episode, we are talking about what is the OSR anyway. I say this because there's currently a social media debate going on about what is and what is an OSR. And just want everybody to know, we had this planned a while back. It's just happy coincidence. But first... And- and we can't talk about what's old school without necessarily talking about the definition of the OSR, I hope. <laughs> yeah, and that's really what I had in mind when I wrote the show notes. Because, you know, we everybody, you hear people talking about, well, this is OSR, this is an OSR. Um, and I'm thinking more in style or in presentation or something than, you know, the nitpicking of what does it literally mean? Is it old school revolution? Is it old school renaissance? You know, when did it first start? I, you know, that's not the issue I think that most people are interested in now. I could be wrong, but it's more just when we mention these things, especially if a new school person picks up the podcast and listens, it's like, well, they always bandy about OSR. What does that mean? Yeah, let's just say up front that we're just going to discuss our personal opinions and opinions are like perception checks. Every character has one. <laughs> yep. Except when you're really old school, but anyway. 
Oh, well, oh you, you got me. That's good. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. First, uh, what have we been doing in gaming this week? John. Well, I mean, I think I get longer than a week. What. <laughs> That's true. I mean, what I was have you been probably doing last on here like yeah. nine months ago. Um, That's true. And, you know, in the last nine months, I have done at least one thing that is perhaps the ultimate old school thing that you could do, which is I played in the Greyhawk dungeon in Gary Gygax's house in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Sweet. <laughs> now that's, you know, actually you, you just had uh, Ethan Gilsdorf on uh, last time, didn't you? Mm-hmm. So Ethan wrote up an article about this that was on Boing Boing about my, my trip, my pilgrimage to uh, Gary Gygax's basement. I actually took some home movies and stuff. And uh, when Ethan and I were doing a panel in Boston at a, uh, a convention called uh, PAX East, as part of the Penny Arcade Exchange family of conventions, um, I showed some of this footage there. And he was like, oh, my God, I've got to be able to write something up about that. So I, I got to play an elf magic user named Lyrax. He was part of a party of about 10 who descended into Greyhawk Dungeon. This is based on a recently rediscovered uh, snippet of the first level of Greyhawk that actually was distributed for, um, Gary himself distributed, kind of to, to teach people how to construct dungeons and how to play D&D around 1976, I think. And um, so I got to adventure and I, I had a really amazing experience uh, killing an ogre being a first-level magic user uh, with a dagger. Pretty much I did every single hit point of damage that, that was done to slay that thing with a dagger, stabbing it from behind. Congrats. I, I'm, I was down in the basement beating Mike Carr at Chainmail at the same house, and I'm jealous. <laughs> so when you got home movies, did you do it on 8mm reel? Or? No, I did it in <laughs> HD with my... Uh, <laughs> in that sense, it would not be old school. The footage would not be old school. Ah, the experience yeah. was, you know, this was very much roll up a hapless, hopeless guy, you know. As a starting magic user, actually, we rolled for spells even. So oh. I only had one spell. Oh. <laughs> yeah, ordinarily, right, you just take sleep or something, right? I think I think I'd light. That uh, was my one spell. Wow. Uh, so I spent a lot of time just lighting oil flasks and hurling them. <laughs> how many, how many hit else? points at first level? <laughs> I think I had like two. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, so if anything had hit me, I would have been dead. So this footage, is it or will it ever be available, say, on your website for people to you know, click on a link and, and watch? Oh, uh, so it's actually up on Boing Boing. I, I don't think I put it on my site. Uh-huh. Um, I think Ethan uploaded it to his YouTube channel. And then um, and I, I do like a little voiceover. But we do a tour of the basement, Jim, where you were. And um, I show that sand table and the sign there that has the entrance to the War Games room <laughs> that's on the door to go down into it. And I just try to give the experience of what it would have been like going to that old house to, to do some gaming. Okay, cool. in, your, in your memory, it's like a palace. And you get there, and it's just a regular tiny little basement. I mean, and, and the house is really, if you think that, you know, seven people lived in that house, if you go to the upstairs, they all slept. I mean, it was, it's, it's a pretty humble dwelling, actually. And, you know, it really, you know, it, it makes you see the circumstances that Gygax was living in at the time the D&D came out. And, and you know, he went from that to having a horse ranch with Arabians, you know, <laughs> that was a few miles away from this where he lived. And I mean, you know, it's just the transformation in his life alone is one of the most striking things about it. So did your character live? 
my character did live. <laughs> Astonishingly wow. enough, that's we, the best of all. After you, you knife know, an ogre to death, who cares if you live? You got bragging <laughs> rights. Uh, Paul Stormberg, actually, the guy who runs the collector's trove, he even wrote a poem about my character. So my character was so terrible. I mean, I, you know, you just rolled this with straight three d six, and I think, you know, I had like a six strength, eight con. I mean, it was just an appalling <laughs> character. And um, so he wrote this, this, this poem about hopeless PCs. My character's name was Lyrax. It was a parody of the Dr. Seuss Lorax. So <laughs> I, I am Lyrax. I speak for hopeless PCs. <laughs> <laughs> Let them so, grow. It's pretty good. Cool. Well, those are the best kinds when you have what looks to be a hopeless character and it winds up just becoming some someone who's just fantastic, you know, achieving all these things. It seems so much more satisfying than if you start out with someone with above average scores across the board and you do the same thing. <laughs> Thank you. That is why I love the particular game I love that shall not be named on this podcast. <laughs> but rhymes with DCC? Yeah, uh. <laughs> rhymes with PCC. <laughs> Blind carbon copy. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Well, you just beat all our stories, I'm sure. <laughs> but we'll try anyway. DM Liz. Um, I've done nothing, nothing. in gaming. Yes. Yes. I, I've been working on a couple of projects for my upper-level art courses, and I'm currently trying to wrap up a photography project. And so for the past two weekends, I've skipped out on our weekly AD&D game. And because I've been busy either working on my professional portfolio course, or now, this week, I've been working on my photography course. So I have done absolutely nothing in gaming this past week, and it's it's been very sad. Liz wasn't there. They canceled both games. <laughs> it was not because I wasn't there. Well, okay. This this weekend was uh, our DM had to spend with his parents just because it was their 35th wedding anniversary or something. I mean, really. Mm -hmm. Well, that's legit. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the but the prior week he did cancel. So. Although we were, does that count as gaming? We were on another podcast. Well, yeah, we were we um were guests of the Gagmen RPG podcast. Um, Mike mostly, I was there just sort of to bolster him, but it was all about talking about Victorious, and we helped them create an adventure for the game on the show. Just a big brainstorming group. It's not exactly gaming, but it's related to gaming esque. Promoting right. Mike's forthcoming RPG sounds pretty gaming-related to me. Yeah, <laughs> if not classic D&D. So that's, oh, that's as close nice. as I got. <laughs> okay. See, it may not be classic D&D, but if steampunk robots and superheroes showed up in the middle of an OD&D dungeon, that would totally be in the spirit of old school. Yep. Well, and it's definitely old school to take this to new places. You know, I think that's that's a point I want to talk about today is how many of the earliest games, the 1970s, were about transplanting this amazing concept into all these different new settings and trappings and ideas. Right. So on. yeah. All right. It's up to you, Jim. <laughs> talking about your favorite <laughs> RPG that will not be named. Well, um, 
uh, it was the off week for that, although last Saturday, uh, speaking of Lake Geneva, I think I pulled off a pretty Lake Geneva move. Uh, I've been overwhelmed with uh, writing assignments and have reached a point where I can't run my campaign anymore. So what we decided to do as a uh. group is one of my players has taken I, – I, we, we talked him into running, and I thought he was just going to run DCC, and then he came back to me, I really want to run your campaign. Can you just set me up in a different geographic area? So I handed him, like, you know – Canada, <laughs> and, <laughs> and he started running my campaign, and I got to play as a player because all I have That's to do is cool. show up and roll dice. Cool. So it was uh, James Smith as the DM, and it's I, I think that John, you correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's kind of a, a, a Gary Gygax move where he would switch to players and play under Jim Ward or Rob Coons, right? Oh, definitely. And I mean, Arneson, even very early on in Blackmore, before D&D came out, um, he fielded off parts of the campaign to John Snyder and Greg Svensson, who ran it. And he kind of became like a world administrator. So he was franchising. (laughs) Okay, you guys run this part over here at the College of St. Thomas, and I'll run this part over here. And honestly, though, I think Arneson mostly did it because he wanted to run Napoleonics on his hand table in his basement. (laughs) And like that was the thing that he loved most in life. But, But yeah, franchising is definitely very old school. It worked out really cool, and I got to play in my own campaign, and I've never done that before, so it was awesome. Uh, the closest gaming-relating thing I did this week was uh, saddle up for a road trip with Tim Cask and go up to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for the uh, Dawn Patrol air show, where they're like doing mock combat with vintage World War One biplanes, and five minutes on the ground there, we run into Mike Carr, who wrote the game Dawn Patrol, and got to hang with him for Excellent. a little while. <laughs> so how does that even happen? We, neither of yeah. us knew he was going to be there. We just walked up. Oh, hey, Mike. So since this is at an Air Force base, when you say fighting in vintage biplanes, you don't literally mean real vintage biplanes they were flying around, right? Mm-hmm. This is a board game. No, 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 no. They were uh, most of them were reproduction planes because how many you know hundred year old airplane biplanes are there still around? But they had actually had some actual ones, which surprised me. I thought. Anything built out of a wood frame couldn't last 100 years, but some of those are still around, and I've learned that they made some out of aluminum frames even 100 years ago. So this was an air show that just happened to share the same name as Mike Carr's Dawn Patrol game. Oh, yeah, dude. They had Dawn Patrol t-shirts there that were for the air show, and I'm like, snag, I want one of those. (laughs) Because I just want it for the gamer reference. Yeah, Dawn Patrol is like a movie, right? I think that... uh, that TSR stole it. So originally the game was called Fight in the Skies, and it was based on this movie, The Blue Max, that uh, my car was very fond of. And then I think when TSR took it over, they later renamed it Dawn Patrol, but they stole that from another earlier uh, media thing. I, I'm th- I think it was a movie. Yeah, well, it wouldn't surprise me. I was going through my Avalon Hill Wargaming collection one time, and it, it just suddenly struck me how many names they ripped off from popular books for their games. Well, that was the one bad moment Tim had while we were up there because there were all these exhibits and tents and memorabilia you could buy. And there was a giant gaming tent where they were in there gaming World War One biplanes like crazy, but nobody was playing Dawn Patrol. And Tim's like, well, we need to fix this. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good Tim, actually. Oh, yeah, I, just, I was just Googling this one here. So Dawn Patrol was a 1938 Errol Flynn movie. So also <laughs> oh, okay. quite cool. Cool. So, that was the closest I came to gaming the past week. So you two had excellent experiences, and Liz and I were Renee. on a four-hour podcast. <laughs> Which wow. is, you recorded, but hasn't been released yet, right? Right. No, uh, because the information, or the setting for the adventure was kind of dark, that he wants to hold it up till mid-October. 
So it's more kind of a Halloween. Uh, Halloween. Actually, it's going to be broken into two episodes. There's the interview, which will probably be early October, and then the adventure coming out. And they actually publish the adventures through Drive Through RPG that they make on each episode, which is kind of cool. I just didn't want to miss it, man. Okay. Oh yeah. Well, I'm sure I'll be mentioning it at least one more time before before then, if I can possibly work it in. It's <laughs> yeah. all right, though. Why don't we get uh, Liz? Are there any emails? Get down, get down. No, there are no emails. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Liar! <laughs> there are no emails today ah. because, once again, I've been busy doing crap and I'm lame and I didn't gather any together and I totally suck. <laughs> that's okay it gives us a rest and we can just pile on more ep- uh, emails on later shows <laughs> although I do want to mention something to those listening there's a lot of you have sent us things whether it's classes or a little adventure or anything like that and you say you'd like us to look it over and give you an opinion now we're not really sure when you say that. Do you mean us just look it over and tell you in an email, or are you submitting it for a review on the show? Um, most of these we're just going to kind of do the former unless you tell us otherwise because I don't want to put somebody's rough draft on, talk about it on the show, award it dragons, and then he goes, no, I just wanted you to look at it. I didn't <laughs> want you to rip it apart on air. <laughs> So please, if you've sent us something and you weren't specifically telling us to review it in the products of your imagination section and you want us to, please let us know. Send us another email so we know what to do with those. I definitely want to review some of those submissions because one of them was a dungeon written by a seven-year-old. And I want to hear Mike give dragons to a seven-year-old and still be a hard ass. (laughs) Hey, I will pull no punches. I do. A lot of my students have the writing skills of seven-year-olds, so, you know, I oh. <laughs> I think it'll... Oh, don't... I'm not even going to get started. Not even. I won't. I won't. You know, I, I think I actually submitted my first book to a publisher when I was seven years old. It was actually a choose-your-own-adventure book, so I was already, like, deeply into that kind of thing. And uh, cool. my recollection is the plot of it was that terrorist or some rogue government was going to try to destroy Mount Everest. And for some reason, I felt this was something that should be, should, it was a big deal, it should be prevented. I don't know why anyone <laughs> would target Mount Everest to be destroyed with <laughs> missiles. Um, it doesn't yeah. really seem like it is that politically significant. But, um, you know, the, the Publisher Act was very nice about it. They, they, they unfortunately couldn't accept the submission, but they encouraged me to keep working at it. And so here I am years later. And uh, so you see, they, they were nice about it. Um, although when you say that about blowing up Mount Everest, it makes me think of that episode of Community where they were I, making fun of G.I. Joe. I was thinking of that too. Like, why is Cobra <laughs> attacking the Taj Mahal? <laughs> and with all due respect to the place, why isn't the Indian Army here? <laughs> yeah, in your defense, John, there was an episode of Deep Space Nine on the holodeck where the uh, Bond villain's headquarters was on Mount Everest because he was going to raise the level of the oceans and Mount Everest was going to be the only land left. See, now if I revisit the story, I'll be able to add some elements that maybe could make it more plausible, something people could buy into today. That's pretty good. We look forward to seeing that adventure. (laughs) (laughs) Coming soon to RPG Now. Yes. (laughs) 
Alrighty. Well, if you want to send us an email, where should they send it to, Jim? Saverdiepodcast at gmail.com. Indeed. Or you can send us a voicemail at 940-536-3763. And with that, we will take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll head into Game On. KTEL presents D&D Blockbusters. All original hits, all original artists, including XP and the Cobalt Band. Warlocks. Coming group, EPO, Scrawling Notes, Character Stories, and many more. Featuring the Boulet Brothers. DD Blockbusters. 20 original hits, 20 original stars. Available on LP or 8 track tape. Order yours today. Game on, OSR game on, or maybe we should, maybe I should have just called this old school rather than using the actual acronym, but when I put the show notes together, I didn't know it was so volatile. Yep, too late now. Exactly. Well, the, the idea of both is an experience individuals have, so individuals are always going to have a different experience from each other. I mean, what's, yeah. my, what's old school to me might not be old school to you, so on and so forth. Yeah. And well, I think you know too. There, there are people who want to recapture old school play by looking at these old books and saying, "Well, how do I play this way?" And then there are people who want to be able to write new games today and say, "These new games that you should buy or interact with, they're games that are in this old school style and have either updated it or you know reimagined it in certain ways." And that's at least an interesting distinction about it. Yeah, I totally yeah. agree. So I guess uh, we'll start off. What does old school play mean to you, John? That's a really tough one. <laughs> what is old school? So, I mean, for me, it's largely dates, right? You're talking to an historian. So, I mean, I think about, I, I know a lot of people are attached to AD&D. I certainly think about the set of things that happened before 1978, before AD&D was really formalized uh, to try to understand the initial conditions in which role-playing were created and what people how people reacted to this completely new mind-blowing phenomenon um so just just historically i find that period most interesting so when i think of the old school that's really what i latch on to by the time you get to the player's handbook and even to some degree uh chivalry and sorcery um in the later 1970s um the primary innovations i think were well understood and were fairly well assimilated by the community and it was it was a matter of elaborating them or trying to create um either easier or deeper <laughs> um, versions of the rules. But, but for me, it's those really old rules, uh, the really hairy ones still on the edge of wargaming, where things are just so fasting when everything was still up for grabs. Okay. Do you, can you give me an example of one? Or? Well, so um, obviously D&D is the, <laughs> you know, the signature um, old school game, 1974 D&D. Right. But when, when you get to, um, I don't know if you guys saw this, I, I just a few months ago put out a version of a game called Rules to the Game of Dungeon. 
which um, is actually just a retyping of a late 1974 pamphlet that had been done by a kid named Craig Van Grastek, who was 14 at the time, that, as far as I can tell, was the first D&D variant. And it strips the game down to about 18 pages of text. It's a very simple system. system's got a lot of problems, mind you. Um, it, <laughs> but it, it shows a, um, just a zaniness, a creativity, a free form um, that still has so many of our familiar attributes of dungeon exploration, personal progression. Um, I mean, that, that to me is, if you want to look at a very early example of what the old school looked like, the play styles that it exemplifies are fascinating. But, you know, this would be Tunnels and Trolls, Empire of the Petal Throne, all the TNT supplements. Um, even the first sci-fi games interest me in this regard, games like Metamorphosis Alpha and Starfaring. Uh, you know, Metamorphosis Alpha, if you think about it, was the first game that said on its cover it was a role-playing game. Uh, before that, people, it wasn't even really a category until 1976. There were, you needed a few data points of games that were like D&D before people even started saying, well, we need a name for this whole genre. And that, that again, that period when all this was up for grabs and no one was really sure what the stuff meant, I find to be just, just endlessly fascinating. Yeah, the term fantasy wargaming was bandied about a lot before then, it seems, in some of the magazines and stuff I've read from the time. And not yeah, not, I mean, not it, always as a plus. Sometimes as a derogatory <laughs> if it was Avalon Hill writing the column. Right. Oh, yeah. But, or some of the hairier, you know, wargamer, miniature wargamers. Who were not fans of fantasy, yeah, who wanted this to be a very serious, you know, hobby about conflict simulation. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a tradition that we can show goes back to you know, the early 1960s when people like Don Featherstone, who was one of the great avatars of miniature wargaming, condemned his friend Tony Bath's games for introducing fantasy elements. He really just slapped him down. This is a waste of time for the hobby. It's childish. Nobody should be doing that. But, but it's certainly true that when a game like D&D came out, no one knew to market it as anything but a war game. And they marketed it to wargamers. It was in wargaming periodicals, at wargaming conventions. So that, that was who they expected would take up the game. And one of the things that's so fascinating about that period is how science fiction fandom intervened, all these people who were interested in Tolkien and so on. When I say science fiction fandom, that term at the time encompassed what we would now consider fantasy fans. Yeah, they got engaged with that and brought a different interpretation, a different demographic, many more women, people who had a, wanted more stripped-down rules, more, more kind of narrative-oriented rules. So More women. They, I, I would go back that far. It was women they brought. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't more women. There weren't any. <laughs> there, there were, there were very, very few. Yeah, the, the the traditional number that gets bandied around is that this was from the studies that uh, Jim Dunnigan did that the hobby was ninety nine point five percent male at the time. And I'd wager of that remaining point five, probably point four one two percent of them were introduced by brothers or boyfriends or husbands. Well, that point four was Elise and Heidi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you know, Gary Gygax, when he listed his initial playtesters uh, who playtested for him in Lake Geneva, there was, a, there was a girl listed there. It was a woman named uh, Mary Dale, who was the older sister of a guy named Bob Dale. Um, and she was one of the people, when, when Mike Bernard first started playing in that group, uh, she was already an established character. She'd been there a while. She had a high-level character. Um, oh. So even cool. even in that PlayStation group, there 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 was a woman. Now I wouldn't say the same for Arneson's group in the Twin Cities. <laughs> um, that was really just all university white male teenage to early twenties folks. But and I imagine 
any women probably didn't really get into the earlier Bronsteins or anything either. Yeah, I haven't been able to find any evidence that women participated in the that whole club, what the club we now call the MMSA, the Midwest yeah. Military Simulation Association, went through a bunch of different names between kind of 68 and 72, but yeah, there, there just aren't women's names in any of their journals and in any play records I can find. Okay. All right. Well, Jim? I have a checklist. Of course I do, because it's me, right? Um, <laughs> and th- these are just my experiences again, but so I'm not saying this is universal, but uh, it's it's pretty easy for it to be... Although, I want to speak back to one of John's points. The entry point you had into the hobby is incredibly important because people imprint on that. I've had 25 or 30-year-olds with utter sincerity tell me that they started with old-school games because they started with second or third edition. And they, they're, they're, they're being sincere. They mean it. Cause that you stole was, my point. That was, I'm sorry. I'm good at that. <laughs> no, we're not doing top five, so I felt like I had to stick that in somewhere. <laughs> you know, so, so it can vary, um, you know. Liz started with homes. I started with AD and D and little homes, you know. But uh, so I try and get it down to metrics. My old school checklist is rulings over rules. So rules light versus crunch, uh, and uh, because that act, the misunderstood thing about light rule systems is they create more PC opportunities, not less. So more more of we'll figure this out as we go, which is easy to do with ODD because the way the rules were written, the rules system underlying it are solid, but the way they're presented is is confusing to me, and I'm I'm not a dumb guy. Uh, so rules over rulings, the players in general are more focused on the campaign versus their individual characters. That's very old school to me. Um, a lack of absolute game balance, which gives you uh, a higher risk reward ratio. You risk more, but you get more enjoyment out of the game, in my experience and opinion. And uh, the last thing on the checklist is just greater emphasis on campaign creation versus active role play, showing versus telling. Like exactly what you told us in pre-air, John, or, or during what did you do in gaming this week? I mean, that's a whole story about that character that had that been a campaign, your, mat, your elf would have gone on to be infamous for, you know, knifing that ogre. And that could that wouldn't have happened in later editions where you've got, you know, skills, feats, and all kinds of character background that you showed up at the table with. You created your character background in one evening in Gary's house. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that about, you know, people with sincerity talking about being an old schooler. I mean, the whole term grognerd was originally, you know, board war gamers complaining about role players, right, John? I don't know if they're complaining about war gamers. The, I, I think or no, the war first, gamers complaining about role players. Sorry. Oh, yeah, so I mean, I think the first usages of that actually were before role playing had really become a, a problem from the war gamers' <laughs> perspective. Dunnigan, I think, coined that term, and he used it just to refer to people who had been around since way before the 70s. Okay. But I mean, yeah, there was, you know, people who complained that the whole role-playing game, though, there was that, particularly in the late 70s, right? The whole, you know, ah, role-playing games, I don't know any of that. Oh, well, Give me my Napoleonics, you know. Well, it's true. I mean, it <laughs> transformed the industry and not, not in a way that those people saw as positive. I mean, it, you have to just look at the brain drain alone. So many of the people that were very actively engaged in the wargaming hobby were just seduced by this new thing and uh, abandoned it, right? I mean, yeah. uh, we look at the 70s that, as the heyday of the wargaming hobby because by 1980, um, th- you know, things had, had really fundamentally changed. The zines that had been important were, were losing subscribers and... Uh, you know, if you went to a convention like Gen Con, nobody wanted to play your game anymore. <laughs> now they all wanted to play, you know, Chivalry and Sorcery or whatever. 
Well, I, re I really liked what you said, John, about how your, your metric was dating and, and chronology, and I came from a completely separate direction with my little checklist, but they overlap and intertwine because that's where the personal perspective gets into it. I mean, my knee-jerk response is first edition AD&D is old school because that's the system I started in, when really, by my own metrics, AD&D is the sort of frontier land where it stopped being rules light and got started to get crunchy. I mean, yeah, very true. <laughs> but I mean, I think your, your guidelines, I thought, were, were excellent. I mean, especially insofar as you were talking about it being the campaign versus the character. Um, certainly, wargaming emphasized much more that the, you know, any individual unit was expendable. <laughs> and you see much less of a one-to-one -one correspondence, much less of a, this character is a surrogate of my person in the game world, and much more uh, of an individual managing multiple characters. Very common in the first couple of years of D&D uh, to show up to a game and play three characters at once. And, um, and I mean, hirelings were a lot more, they had a lot more willingness to get a group of hirelings to be as part of their character's entourage, you know, almost like their own little military unit. Oh, definitely. No, I mean, if you look at the early play style in Boston, um, this is recorded in uh, things like the American War Gamer and old scenes like this. Uh, to some degree in Alarms and Excursions, the guys there like Mike, Mark, Mark Swanson, uh, George Phillies, Glenn Blackow, who kind of defined the Boston style of D&D play, you know, they played so that when you first came with the character, you would have like 40 hirelings at your disposal. So literally, <laughs> you would go down to the dungeon with like 40. And if you got killed, your next character could only come back with like 35. <laughs> this was actually <laughs> like... So, so the you know, they were narrowing it down. Right. But yeah, you certainly in, in these early days, in 75, 76, you see people that go into these dungeons with armies. Um, I mean, look at, look at Temple of the Frog, right, in Blackmore. This, this is a, if you were going to assault the Temple of the Frog, you know, you're, you're assaulting a, a force of thousands of NPCs that are antagonists. <laughs> and you're just not going to do that by yourself. So, see, Liz, we need to get Bad Mike to let us go into B1 with an army of hirelings. Well, he only lets us have one dog. I don't know if we're going <laughs> to... An army of dogs. <laughs> that, that could work. So yeah, what's your opinion? Bad Mike is stingy about hirelings in his game, I'm telling you. Yeah. Uh, well, there's not a lot left to add um, for me. When, when I think old school, I think of basically... I, well, I think of Holmes, because that's what I started with. I think of very, you know, a lot of weird things thrown together, um, such as what you would find, say, in a Judge's Guild module. I also think of unbalanced, unbalanced campaigns, you know, where a first-level magic user could run into an ogre. Um, right on. Yeah, so... Sorry, my, my brain's just not really with me today. <laughs> okay. um, but, yeah, more it's or less. It's not just ogres, too. You, you, you can run into gelatinous cubes. We spent, like, half of our time, actually, in the first level of the Greyhawk dungeon trying for how to trap a gelatinous cube, to, like, lure it into a room with two doors, and get it in there, and then nail the door, you know, <laughs> the door shut, just to keep the goddamn thing, because we could not kill it. <laughs> And as far as halflings and large parties go, um, I tend to think, at least back then, when you went into an adventure, a dungeon, a, a setting, because it was so unbalanced, I think, you know, back then, we tended to expect to lose a few 
So you wanted to be playing two or three characters because you were going in thinking, chances are I'm going to lose at least one of these, and I'll be lucky if I come out with a character still alive. <laughs> well, Liz, sure. you just gave me something else that needs to be on my little checklist because the uh, genre blending of the monsters, there's nothing more old school than that. And reading, I, I'm sure John can speak to it better than I can. It was, it was, it came from as simple a thing as, you know, those guys hammering, going at it, hammer and tong and wanting to continue to be able to surprise the player. So you turn a corner, open a room and there's an Android now. That's very old school. Very true. And the, the multiple people going in, I mean, when we think of a classic dungeon like the Tomb of Horrors, and I'll speak here to the original Expedition of the Tomb of Horrors, the 1975 version that was played at Origins 1, you know, this was a dungeon that was designed for 15 pre-gen characters <laughs> from 15 <laughs> people at a time. And so it really was a crunch all you want, we'll make more. You, you knew you were going to lose <laughs> half of those people. And so when you see these horrible death traps that are in something like the Tomb of Horrors, sure, if you're only going in there with three people, um, it seems like it just must be impossible. But these were designed for a vast number of PCs to go in. And that says nothing of any NPCs they had at their, their beck and call. And by comparison... I- if you like new school flavored games, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If you and your group want to want to get together and play Pathfinder, it's not my cup of tea, but that's great. But that's that, that sensibility you just described, John, is is very uh, opposed to the Pathfinder sensibility of it's an expectation that our party of seven to eight characters are pretty much gonna steamroll through this dungeon one way or the other and come out intact. Getting to structured my views. structured encounter balance. I'm sorry, did we? Yeah. No, no problem. Um, I used to be a subscriber to the old school means rules light, but as I've read more, I mean, especially in the late 70s, there were plenty of really crunchy old school games. Uh, anything by SPI comes to mind, uh, whether it's Dragon Quest or Universe and such. Dave Hargrave's uh, Ardoran stuff is pretty dense. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you can be crunchy and old school. However, so I tend to tell, I maybe I don't view old school as necessarily rules light, but rules light is my pre- preferred method of play. And I think probably to me, old school is whether you're dealing with a small set of rules or a huge tome of rules. To me, the old school is the DM going through and using what he wants, and ignoring mm-hmm. what he doesn't. Now, to me, that's old school. Ah, oh, that's a good point. And even the preface to the Holmes Basic Rules, you know, says the game is open to modification, interpretation, you know, and, you know, it's basically telling you, use what works for you and your group, and if you need to change a rule to make this work for you and your group, do it. Oh, to Ethan, when he was on the podcast last episode, said that the system they were pl- we were discussing which system they're playing currently, and he rattled off it was basic fantasy. They played some Osric, but he noted that it's a rare occasion when they even crack the books when they're playing. Yeah, and talking to you know, as far as some of the things John has written, that must have been really radical to a war gamer. It it was. Um, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> though, though. Again, you need to remember to to separate wargaming into two very different buckets. 
and you know there was the board wargaming tradition of SBI and Avalon Hill, and then this you know which was very prescriptive in its rules, and and there was no room for deviation outside of the design of variants, and design of variants was a big deal for them. But but then there was the miniature wargames tradition, right, which was much more about let's paint some awesome miniatures, make some awesome sand table or whatever, and then we'll agree on some rules for it. And that that community was always hacking, always tinkering. That's and true. D and D came out of that. Is is the point, though, right? I mean, that that was the direct father of D and D, and Brownstein and Blackmore. All those campaigns inherited the entirety of that tradition. Yeah, just reading some of the magazines from back in the you know seventies, it's you know the miniatures magazines are always talking about you know you can use this rule set or this rule set or maybe next year you'll want to use this rule set. It was like. The constant were the miniatures. I mean, maybe you'd rebase them, but on the whole, you constantly fiddled and took this from that rule book and this from that rule book, as long as both opponents agreed. This actually happened just yesterday. Tim and I, on our way back from the air show, stopped at a game store bookstore in Fairborn, Ohio, and they had this beautiful new, brand new game that involved miniature sailing ships. And Tim almost bought it he's looking at it and it's these beautiful little miniatures but then there's the big box version of the board game and on the way back he was talking about why he didn't buy it he's like i just don't feel like writing another rule set for myself he was going to get it just for the components and write his own rules yeah (laughs) yeah um, well, and, and that was what happened a lot. I mean, if, if you look at, you know, part of the origin myth of D&D is this game, The Siege of Bodenburg, right, which was based on this Elastalin miniature set in this beautiful castle. And I have a picture of it in Playing the World. And you, could, you can see it if you go to Gary Kahn. Paul will bring his and show it off. But, you know, the, Gary and Jeff Perrin saw that and took, took those pieces, those components, maybe just a smattering of ideas that Henry Bodenstein had written for the Siege of Bodenburg, but used that as the basis for Chainmail and for the, the rules that descended from it. Um, those pop up on eBay every once in a while, but they're out of my ballpark. <laughs> yeah, I got, I got that castle from Germany a while. Because, again, the company that made these is a German company. Um, I, I got it a while ago. It wasn't too bad. You, you can still get them without really breaking the bank. So, yeah, that's... And I think a new school view of playing is they want to know the exact, you know, the players want to know the exact parameters of the world. They want to know, and from there, they know what they can do and what they can't. And again, that's just another way of playing. Some for some and others for others. Well, <laughs> as, as, as a judge running a game, I will be able to judge how old school a system is by watching the players during play and seeing how much when it comes their turn to do something how much of it is they're thinking and speaking and how much of it is they're staring at their character sheet trying to figure out what to do yeah it's a different way of saying exactly what you just said personally i new school seems to work well for a lot of people but it just doesn't doesn't really do anything for me and you know there are the side camps old school and new school a new school that you know, there are the extremists on both sides. From um, on, the, on the old school, there's you know, if you play anything past 1980, you're a sellout. And then there's the other side of you know, every new thing that comes out is better than the last. I mean, if I the term state of the art, uh, I always kind of felt like we're not talking about stereos here. We're talking about paper role playing games. What do you mean state of the art? Well, please don't shoot me, but. It's not an either-or equation always either. I mean, I mean, yeah, not, not everything has to be a retro clone. 
And, and that's where I was finally getting is that at least back in the day, I don't know about you guys, but one of the things we were always willing to do is try any game that came out. You know, we may not like it, but it, and it just seems that a lot of people get locked into their school and they don't want to try anything else. Yeah, and I, I think it's probably worth adding to this since it hasn't come up yet, though I'm not the expert on this. And, you know, I, I, I'm sure I'll run afoul of veterans of the Forge and the Story Games Forum when I say this, but I think there, there is a, a break that some people perceive between games from maybe 1983 or, or later in the 80s, depends on what, you, what exact games you attribute it to, where the games no longer became about simulating the physics of a world. Let's say that's what the wargaming rules that ultimately became D&D &D let you do. They, they simulate physics and instead became about simulating a particular style of narrative um, and that you designed rules more with a mind to telling a particular kind of story than accurately modeling the way that a world might work. Start ending <laughs> up with the term cinematic or... You know, there, there are a bunch of words for this. And again, I, I don't want to enter into, you know, a big theoretical discussion, but I think that's right. one pretty clear distinction between what old school was and what new school is to some degree. Uh, there are new school games that have these story and narrative dimensions to them that you just, you just don't find in these earlier titles. And whether it's a good or bad innovation is obviously completely up to the conscience of the individual churchgoer, but it, it's a distinction. Yeah. And I think, you know, when there started to be role-playing games that basically were based on extant franchises like the Star Trek RPG or Star Wars or even Middle-Earth role-playing or stuff, I think to a degree, since they're catering to fans of that particular media source, they had to modify the rules to give that feel that the movie or book or whatever gives you regardless of whether it makes physical sense, you know? Uh, Doctor Who role-playing game, which was mm -hmm. one, the first, ver the FASA version was right in that when I was starting out and exploding in gaming and trying everything. Our group would try everything. That was a very difficult franchise to adapt to a role-playing mechanic. And I, this is my favorite thing to talk about because every subsequent role-playing game from D&D &D forward references D&D &D either by comparison to or contrast from, Right. Yeah. Like, okay, we're not going to do Vancing Magic. We're going to do Spell Points. That's that's a difference uh, comparison. But the franchise things like you're talking about can be incredibly difficult because it's hard to engineer in the six uh, party archetypes that we all love because D&D &D was our first thing. Gamma right. World Gamma World is a perfect example of how, how that same thing works beautifully in Metamorphosis Alpha. It's almost the same game in a sci-fi setting, but think, but licensee things. I mean, I'm trying to imagine what a Dresden Files RPG, how that would work, you know. Well, they have one out. Um, Evil Hat Productions does it. I haven't really read it, um, but... Yeah, and and again, once you're dealing with media sources like that, then the players aren't just six murder hobos. You know, they're heroes or they're main characters. And by definition, you know, you need more detail and potentially they probably shouldn't die as quick as Joe Blow. You know, arguably the line is so hard to draw, right? I mean, what is the saving throw mechanic in D&D &D really, what does it really represent if it doesn't represent that? If it doesn't represent the fact that there is a narrative in D&D, &D, right? It's a narrative about somebody who keeps getting better and better, right? And until they yeah. rise to this, you know, level of exalted power. Now, they, they can die along the way, but saving throws are an example of the uncanny ability of heroes to avoid that lightning bolt or that falling rock or whatever. 
True, but don't monsters get saving throws as well? Oh, fair enough, fair enough. And even magic um, items get saving throws, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, a, a way to look at the same thing you're talking about is the uh, game change that happens when it's still medieval fantasy, you've just shifted to a, a, a licensee. Suddenly it's Conan the role-playing game or Elric the role-playing game. Suddenly you're like, okay, wait, well, Elric, Elric can't die. You know, Conan never dies. Yeah. I mean, we, we'd go first, I think, to Warriors of Mars, which might be, again, it's a hybrid pseudo-RPG. It's still a lot like a war game. But if you play John Carter, John Carter is highest is 13th level i think it's the highest level in the game it's impossible to get to 13th level except by virtue of being john carter there you go sort of like uh in philotomy's musings they were po- pointing out in his campaign that above 10th level required extra special methods packs with other powers or super magics or that sort of thing liz you really were working extra hard today at school weren't you because i couldn't even bait you into this conversation with a doctor who reference <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm brain dead. I'm I'm going to be worse than useless for the most part of this episode, and I apologize to everyone. No, <laughs> Just say taco be... every now and then. Yeah, it's like hello, <laughs> hi, hello. <laughs> I brought right, that. Well, I brought well, everything I, to the broad cult. Sorry. <laughs> well, I was hoping Liz was gonna maybe throw in something pithy before retreating, but no. Uh-huh. No, I got nothing. I literally, I'm... (laughs) Well, here's an interesting argument. Considering how we each feel about old school and new school, is it possible to play a character old school in a new school game? (laughs) what, What I mean is, you know, say the DM and the other players are determined to play it in a new school manner. And I say this because... I know a lot of the initial hype of 5th edition D&D, and I'm not grading it yay or nay. I'm just saying, was the blurb that you can play your characters any way you want, like any edition? Now, I'm not going to ask whether D&D 5 can do it or not. I'm just asking, as a theoretical argument, can you do that, or are the two schools that incompatible? Does the world have to reflect the old school or is it well, character play? I mean, I guess I'd, I'd initially want to separate, you know, when you say new school game, using new school system from running a game in a particular new school style where the referee and the other participants have this new school disposition. Um, I, I mean, I'd like to say for any rule set, provided that uh, the players sitting down at the table have the ability to invent and to experience their own adventure, which is one of the defining characteristics for me of what it is for something to be a role-playing game. You can be old school on that. You can be new school on that. As long as the rules don't just prevent you from doing what RPGs are supposed to let you do, <laughs> then, of course, you can play it in old school style, even with a, a new school system. But when you get into this, the other question of, well, can some people sitting at the table want to have a very... Let's to use my distinction earlier, a very story-driven kind of experience um, versus, let's say, a very wargaming style experience of, of uh, old school. Can they really interface? To some degree, I think they can. And I, I think, frankly, I, whenever we sit down at the table, there are, are going to be conflicting incentives among the players, and people want to emphasize one aspect of the game or the possible the possible story uh, versus others and sometimes those things lead to schisms and they cause games to collapse if it gets too severe 
but um, nothing, I think, precludes people being able to interface in this fashion. And I think that's one of the strengths of these games, that uh, a lot of the time you can salvage it, even if people are sitting down around the table for very different reasons. Okay, well, and this is kind of what I'm getting to, or at least maybe in a roundabout way. Is this sort of thing a new versus old school thing, or does this get a little more, well, down to just the type of people who are playing a given game? I think when we're talking about this, we're very much talking about play style when it's sitting at a table with another group of living human beings. So if there's, yes. like John just said, if there's a, a a mindset, if I'm sitting down to play Pathfinder with a bunch of people I like, I am likely to just go with the flow and not and not buck the way the party's going as a player. But they make fun of me at Gateway Games all the time because I will not go into a dungeon without my 10-foot pole, my flask of oil, my 50-foot of rope, my mirror, <laughs> my garlic. You know, I've got a list and, uh, it. you know, can you throw magic missile at a target you can't see around the corner of a dungeon? Well, if I have a mirror I can tie to the end of my 10-foot pole with a rope, yes, I can. You know, that's old school play. And that doesn't, and doing that doesn't, uh, I mean, you know, unless you're obnoxious about it, doesn't disrupt play. If and we play with mixed tables all the time. I mean, people that play both in both styles, but are more adept at one than the other. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I mean, Rick Rick Hull and I have been back and forth because he uh, is a uh, playtester uh, GM for Goodman Games and runs all these playtests. And as you know, it got to the point where he wouldn't allow me to play a spellcaster. And uh, the first step of that was uh, after I had like you know done what i do in one game the next game we show up at he's like here i've got a character for you and he hands me this wizard without a single offensive damage spell and i must have like whined or something and he's like well you i'll let you re-roll those spells and i'm looking at the list and i'm going no i can play this guy because he had enlarge and i'm like can we go shopping for equipment before we leave and he's like yes and so i went into the dungeon with like my enlarged spell and a backpack full of flasks of oil and made my own fireballs that's old school <laughs> And and, and that didn't upset anybody. It's as much thinking outside the box, as it were, or outside the rules. And, you know, I've had DMs who, you know, even quote-unquote old-school rules-like games who, you know, are very, if it doesn't say you can do it in the book, you can't do it. Proficiencies, in other words. Yeah. um, And, you know, some people would say that's a new school style, but obviously it was an old school game and an old school context. So it may also be just like you were saying, a matter of play style. And it's just fallen under this rubric of new or old school in our discussions, which is another thing I have heard a lot is people talk about the idea of not playing the core races as being somehow a new school thing. You know, whether it's Dragonborn or Keeflings or, you know, all sorts of things. And, you know, everybody knows how, I'm, how I love gnomes. As far as I can tell, you know, the old, old school games basically allowed, gave people the option that if they wanted to, they could play most anything. As, yeah. long, as, as long as it was on a power level. I mean, Holmes, right, Liz? Yeah, and, um, you know, you, you could easily, you know, find a person with a lizard man PC or etc. And again, it was if you're going to do that, it's with the agreement of your game master 
you know, the two of you are getting together and it's like, this is what I want to do. And he or she says, you know, okay, I'll allow this, you know, getting to the whole, the whole thing. Um, you know, when we were talking about a couple of episodes ago about a couple, you know, our friends who were playing with us and, you know, they were very uncomfortable, you know, not, you know, role playing, quote unquote. Personing it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that doesn't, you know, they they certainly were not new school gamers. And, you know, even in the Holmes booklet, you know, when you're looking at the snippet of play example, you know, for the most part, people are referring to their characters in the third person, you know, so-and-so looks around the corner. So, you know, who's to say that is not, you know, really old school? Um who wrote us that email? Because they, whoever it was, completely changed my mind on this. Where <laughs> I, I now think you can third-person narrate your character and role-play the crap out of them. It's fine. Yeah. Was it yeah, Robert I think, Fisher? I think it may have been. I'll have to look that up. You know, sometimes when you are doing a different play style than the people around you, you can change their minds and get them to go along with you. Sometimes you can't. And you just have to... I'm going to pick my battles here and, you know, I'm just go with go with the general consensus even though I would rather be doing this with my character. And I had another point I was going to make, but I've lost it. So, <laughs> well, let me throw it out to everybody. Um, any final thoughts on playing old school style before we go into DM Fiat and talk about DMing old school? Okay. Let's move into DM Fiat then. The time has come, as I promise. The time when I reveal to you, my loyal followers, the key to creating hysteria, fear, God. DM Fiat. Now we're going to talk about how from behind the screen, how do you run your games and what the differences are between old school or new school, how you would play it in either way. And so I'm not picking on John again. I'll start with Jim. Oh, but I want to hear what John says. (laughs) You first. You go first. (laughs) (laughs) I hear myself all the time. I want to hear John. Um, Two opinions enter. One opinion leaves. uh, First way I run... This is me. This is my personal judging style. The first way I make it old school is that I make sure that the adventure includes at least one genuine threat of a TPK. So that there is there there are encounters the players can roll over, there's encounters that are tough battles, and there's one that if they're smart, they need to run from. Or come up with something fabulous to defeat. Some great idea, which happens if you if you if you oh, yeah. if you say yes to your players enough, that stuff will happen too. You think it's going to be a TPK, and they blow it to shreds. That's how you run an old school game at Jim's table. Yeah, that's one of the reasons I like. I don't see a problem with giving XP for gold. Jim Ward and I've argued back and forth about this because I like a potential TPK at the front and the end of my adventures. Like you must be this high to ride this ride. I like it one right at the front door. So kind of a death. <laughs> 
potential death sandwich. That one, that one has you can't since it's at the front door, you can't run away from it. But it has to be solvable somehow. But the, <laughs> but but there's a potential of a party wipe if they are uh, uh, if they're not on their game. Okay. Get everybody, you know, blood flowing and thinking. All right. Uh, John. Yeah, it's a, a tough one. I mean, I guess. When I think about this, I, I want to draw back on war games. Um, I want there to be mapping that looks like recognizable war game mapping would be, I guess. Um, and I'll, I'll speak a little bit more to that. I, I like to see the miniatures being used. Um, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of anecdotes we have about the right way to run in, in a truly old school game. You know, Mike Bernard tells a great story about how when he was playtesting Greyhawk, uh, Gary would sometimes hide behind a filing cabinet because he didn't want people to see his face as he would describe these things. He really <laughs> wanted to, he wanted the words to give you know the entire impression of what was going on without them being able to see his expression along with them. Um, there's something in that the that goes back. The screen. <laughs> yeah, right, right. That is possibly <laughs> the most awesome Gary story I've ever heard. <laughs> Have you guys noticed, by the way, these days, everybody who makes DM screens now, they're like six inches high. I can't even read these things anymore. Yeah, I got annoyed. <laughs> I, I bought one of those, you know, where you slide the sheets in, and then I get it, and it's like on its side. It's only like yes. eight inches high. I'm like, what is That's, this? Yeah, it was landscape instead of portrait. <laughs> and I was yeah. so annoyed. I had to cut a piece of poster board that was high enough to stick in the center one just so it's like, who came up with this? Well, so it's, it's supposed to make it seem like less of an obstruction, I guess. And this, this, though, begs the question that Mike is raising, right? Should the DM be in this, you know, deus absconticus, like, removal <laughs> from the rest of the group? Um, and, I mean, there, there are wargaming kind of precedents for that in the sense that often in these traditional uh, miniature wargames, you know, the Kriegspiel tradition that inspired this guy, Charles Totten, whose group Stratego, whose game Strategos is what um, Wesley and Arneson kind of reclaimed to find the concept of the referee and a lot of the concepts that we see in Dungeons and Dragons. Um, in games like this, the referee would have their own map that players could never see. And it was important for players to have to have a map where they marked where they thought forces might be. And then, you know, when they would rely purely on the verbal reports of the referee to ascertain how they should move things. And this could lead to all kinds of amusing misunderstandings when your forces are in completely different places than you think and, you know, you botch in various ways. But that, that was what these, these tools were intended to teach people to be able to do properly, was how to command with a map. The map was an apparatus that officers exercised in times of war and these these devices had been created to help you learn to use them properly. They so I mean, called think, it the map game, didn't they? Yeah, right. There, there were several of them that have that, that quality. Yeah. Yeah, map maneuvers is what Sayer called his, for example. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess I like that kind of making it more of a war game, making players um, track things themselves on their own map, definitely draw their own dungeons. And um, there's an innovation that uh, I guess I'd probably say Jack Scrooby and Tony Bath were probably equally responsible for in the late 1950s, where people started talking about something called a strategy tactical war game. And this was a two-mode war game. And the first mode, imagine you've got Europe on a big map, and you're maneuvering your armies around on it, the two commanders are. Um, and then when the forces meet, that, that, that whole map is the strategic context. When forces meet on the map, you then go to the tabletop and lay out your miniatures and have this tactical battle. And whoever uh, survives the, 
the tactical battle, those forces then go back to the map and can maneuver further. And this was a great way that they did a campaign structure. And I argue in Playing the World and elsewhere that this is really what defined the way the dungeon works. The dungeon is a strategic context where you maneuver on paper. And then when you get in a room where there are some critters, you fight a tactical battle, right, with, with your miniatures or whatever. And this, this is a coherent interpretation of how D&D was actually supposed to be played at the time. So by that interpretation, um, what was it, Milton Bradley had that game Hero Quest? Um, that was actually closer to that concept. <laughs> right. Well, you know, Milton Bradley actually innovated in any number of uh, hidden information games. You know, I think it was Ken St. Andre who first when he was describing how to play Tunnels and Trolls in the very first printing of Tunnels and Trolls, trying to explain the game to people who had never seen D&D before, said, think about it like it's Battleship. Like, one side defines a secret map that the other side can't see, and there are resources on this map, and it's the job of their opponent to explore that map. (laughs) And, you know, the original versions of Battleship were drawn on paper, on a grid. And these games like Salvo in the 1930s, and you would then just mark on the grid what the positions were where you found enemy forces. And if you think about it, a lot of these secret information techniques ended up influencing D&D, I think, very very strongly. Or even Stratego, where you meet a group of orcs, but your first job is to figure out who's the caster, who's the shaman, and nail him first. But you don't know, yeah. necessarily. <laughs> right, right. Okay. Well... I would probably say that my way of running a game that I would consider old school is the player characters can attempt anything. Um, they might not be very good at it, but I think that if they come up with some innovative idea, I, I can't count the number of times that I've played in games or I've watched games where people have said, you know, well, I want my character to do this. Oh, you can't do that. Why not? Well, there's no rules for it. Or you're X class, you can't do that. See, later in the notes, you've got what's the difference in the way we've run games back in the day as opposed to today. And that's a skill that I didn't have back in the day that I have since learned, which is to say yes to player ideas and suggestions as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I wonder if some of that is, you know, where you know the player makes that suggestion and the DM is totally caught off guard. And they don't know how to respond to it. It's like, well, if I let them do that, you know, I don't know what to do next. You know, and they're just kind of, uh, no, you can't do that. It's easier just to say no. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Mike, in that, I mean, I I consider the ability for players to attempt anything, this is one of the major arguments of playing at the world, is one of the necessary conditions for something to be a role-playing game. Um, I mean, that's... You know, this came from Totten, that line, anything can be attempted, is something that Dave Wesley found in Totten's Strategos in, in uh, 1880 and uh, brought into uh, his Strategos N variant, which was informed Brownstein, which in turn informed Blackmore. And yeah, I mean, if you in games you can't do that, um, I, I'm almost inclined to say it's not, not even old school or new school. It's just not even a role-playing game anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, and so we can argue a lot of these you know, can computer role-playing games offer a trade-off where... You know, you, you really can't quite attempt anything anymore, but we, we get convenience instead. And, you know, whether we would still want to term those role-playing games, I think, is a, a, a real serious question. Well, your, your point is absolutely valid because that's a metric uh, online and computer role-playing games are measured by is how much, things, how, how much weird stuff did they program in there? Can you just go over to the pool table, pick up a pool, pool cue, and hit somebody with it? Of course, 
then one wonders the choose-your-own-adventures. Would they constitute? I mean, I guess they wouldn't be role-playing games, would they? Well, it's um, they're 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 very primitive ones that offer you only a limited freedom of agency. I mean, freedom of agency is always on a continuum. Like like Liz was saying, I mean, sometimes you can propose an action and the referee just can't handle it. And sometimes the referee should tell you no, right? If right. you're trying to do something, well, I want to fly through the air. I, right. I flap my try. arms really powerfully. <laughs> right. Do it all you want. You're not going to fly. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. Okay. I should say characters should be able to do anything that's plausible in the milieu rather and than literally anything. Right. But, you know, sometimes players will propose something that you're just not prepared to answer because you just it just catches you out of left field and here you are. And I think that you, you need to think about choose your own adventure games and computer games as being very similar. This is actually something I write about a lot in the epilogue of Playing at the World. Um, since I see a resemblance between Buffalo Castle and if you follow the early Tunnels and Trolls solo dungeons like Buffalo Castle, these were effectively choose your own adventure games. Mm-hmm. Now, the choose your adventure game itself has its own whole history in the 70s. There were these uh, tracker books out of England, and then Edward Packard, the guy who would write a lot of the early choose your own adventure books, he did some titles before that brand had been created. And so all this was emerging from the same soup kind of in the, the mid 70s. But what was fascinating was to see how all the computer people that were then beginning to experiment with D&D adopting these principles and indeed you know when you when you play a game like and i don't know how many of you play you know new school rpgs like uh morrowind or oblivion or skyrim any any game where you have a dialogue tree even mass effect or dragon age you are kind of going through a choose your own adventure where you you select one of the options depending which one you select you turn to a different page of the game right so the, mm-hmm. these principles still inform actually very modern computer games and have a lot of the same linearity and the same constraints it's just a matter of how sophisticated they are not not a difference in uh, quality i'd say okay it's a fascinating distinction because i played world of warcraft for six months when it first came out and got tired of it but they have come out with a game called hearthstone that of all things is an online collectible card game and i loathe collectible card games in person but in this online game they addressed many of the things that annoy me about it but the dynamic that you're talking about where you have complete freedom of choice and you never know exactly what card combination is coming almost makes it a better role-playing game online than world of warcraft for me Mm. Was that did I, did I make a point or did I just talk in a circle? <laughs> <laughs> Made a point. I'm not yeah. sure I'm quite with you. I, lo- I love Hearthstone. Again, I, I played WoW slavishly. I mean, for all the stuff that I work on old school games, you guys do know, like, I started playing with, like, third at D&D, right? I mean, I, I did not do this when I was oh, a kid. Well, and, and, well know, that's something I would like to point out is I think old school or new school is a mindset. I don't think age – I mean, age can – imply your predisposition to one of those directions but it's not a a barrier <laughs> and even if it was publishing the seminal book on the history of the game and genre gets you gets you a pass yeah i think that would you'd get the coupon gets me a little bit of cred but i mean my point being i mean i i think a lot of these computer games you know the trade-off that they offer is is a good one right i mean i think wow offers you know an experience that's very different from a tabletop rpg experience especially a very old school one but it obviously it's compelling to many tens of millions of people and um it has its own virtues and flaws and you know that none of these games are perfect none of these systems are perfect and they all serve i think very interesting niches so until we get holodecks yeah that's (laughs) 
Well, just so I can sound like less of an idiot, I meant role-playing in like the diplomacy sense maybe or the way you would role-play over Monopoly board, not role-playing in the same context we've been discussing as far as Hearthstone goes. I mean, you're sending messages back and forth. You're trying to decide whether or not to squelch the guy's emotes because he's being a real obnoxious bastard. You know, there's a, it, you know, it, 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 there is a level of role-playing in it because I'll be like, oh, God, not a hunter. I don't want to fight a hunter. Yeah. No, it's, and those emotes, they're so limited, and yet people can still find ways to use them to, to demean you and degrade you. It's, uh, it's remarkable how that works out. Well, that's, that's rule system independent. A griefer can always figure out a way to grief. Well, you've already pretty much told us, Jim, what your idea of monster setup old school is. You have anything you want to throw in, John? Of monster setup in terms of uh, yeah, w- traps and... Yeah, if there's something that you would say stands out to you as old school as opposed to new school um i don't know i mean i guess monsters uh in the oldest versions of D, there was a much smaller stable of monsters i guess and um nonetheless plenty of room for for innovation um and they weren't in alphabetical anything. order right liz <laughs> no they were not <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there are several versions that list in the pre-publication manuscripts, and it's fascinating for me to kind of see what got added when and why and, um, you know, those particulars to it. But, I mean, once you open the door, I mean, the fascinating thing about D&D is it created this taxonomic exercise that they asked us all to participate in, to add monsters, to add ideas, and the fan community did so very rapidly. I mean, in terms of trap styles, you know, I'd say that uh, lethal traps are certainly much more old school, like traps where you just fall into a pit and you're dead. Save or die. Um, save or die. <laughs> save or die. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that, yeah. that goes back to what I was saying earlier about you know the Tomb of Horrors. Like if you've got fifteen people, that makes more sense, you know, and th- that's just the PCs. Then you have your hirelings too. So, and I think it it there's a a slope you get on when the more detailed you make your character generation, the more annoyed your players get when they're killed. And I think that may be a, a difference in the mindsets of the period, you know, as far as gaming goes. I mean, if it takes five minutes to make up a new character, you get one killed, well, it's annoying, but, you know, you can always throw another one in there. Um, but if you spend two hours making a character that gets killed, falling into a pit and automatically dead, um, there's a level of, anno- you know, you've got time invested in that character as opposed to the five-minute guy. There's something to yeah. that. Which supplement was it where Gary had his little notes on suggested traps? Was that Greyhawk? There are some suggested traps Eldritch. even in OD&D. Yeah, yeah. I mean, starting with there, going all the way up through uh, Flying Buffalo's Grimtooth Traps books. I mean, yeah. what, what's old school <laughs> about that is how much thinking the player characters had to do to solve the trap or the riddle of the mystery. Yeah. Um, I don't remember. Perhaps, John, maybe you do. Um, the original idea for... D&D, the brown books, wasn't like only one out of every eight or ten rooms were going to find something in, the others were empty in a given dungeon? Certainly that's the way that Gary played. Um, A lot of people remarked on how much of his, how much was just empty space. I'm not sure he had a specific, you know, stipulation that you should do that. Um, I mean, even statistically, I think there was a pretty reasonable chance of monsters being in, in a given room. Arneson did this actually because he thought about it much more like a war game. This is something I'm going to write about at some point. I haven't really written about much yet, but he designed his rooms based on protection points. 
um, which is a chainmail concept, where hmm. in chainmail, if you have two sides of a war game, you, you, have, you assign them points. And so, you know, if you have 100 points, let's say orcs are worth two points each, you can have 50 orcs, but dragons are worth 100 points each, so you could have one dragon, and it's your choice how to spend your points. When Arneson designed rooms, he would design them a protection point value and then would fill that in with whatever creatures he thought you know he could buy with those points. And as you got lower in the dungeon, the protection point values of these rooms would increase. And this was one of the ways that he tried to establish balance was by making an assessment of what the player characters had versus what you would find for protection points in a given room. Okay. But yeah, I just can't think, you know, in any modern gaming, um, if PCs went into a dungeon where eight or ten of you know, eight out of or ten out of every room is empty. I think you know, at reading modern modules and everything, almost nobody writes like that. It would just seem to really throw people off their game. I would think, even just fifty-fifty. Well, remember that <laughs> that last time we were talking about going through the Temple of Elemental Evil with Preston and our other gamers, and we kept going to empty room after empty room, and it was freaking some people out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's just like, what? What's going on? There's got to be some ulterior motive here. The little booklet so, that we're going to review later in the show has some really good advice about how to do this. Yeah. All right. I well, think I'm looking now at uh, George Lord's solo dungeoneering rules to try to see. Because this is one of the first, like, how to randomly generate a dungeon for a uh, solo adventure. How likely it is that you'll encounter either a trap or a... So it looks to me like, for the most part, yeah, you don't encounter a trap on like a 19 <laughs> out of a, a d20. Um, so for yeah. chamber contents, 1 through 12 be empty. This is on a d20. 13 or 14, monster only. Four, 15 to 17, monster and treasure. And then the rest basically being special. So let's say a roll of 13 through... 17 is guaranteed to be a monster of that. So that's, that's closer to a quarter. So yeah, than... 60% of rooms are empty. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, any last minute talk about DMing before we move onward? Well, um, something I'd like to point out about monsters, um, which would be considered old school as opposed to new school. Um, I think... In my experience, the idea of a monster race not necessarily being inherently evil is something that started coming into play, you know, getting closer to new school than to old school. You know, for instance, I don't think any of us would have run across the is it wrong to kill baby orcs argument back when we first started gaming. Oh, no. I, I think that's something that's relatively new, at least in my experience. Um, I'd say old school, you know, monsters are evil. You know, an orc is always going to be evil, no matter what. New school, an orc may not necessarily be evil, and you could possibly change their alignment. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that is a difference. Hell, in old school, the NPCs are all there to be killed. <laughs> <laughs> there, there were though uh, it's important to remember some mo monsters we call them that were lawful right? 
Um, so there was a chance you would run into creatures in the dungeon that would actually be on your side if you were a lawful party. Might but even aside from that, yeah. Yeah, it's true. An orc is an orc, and it is always moral to kill an orc. And that's wait, one wait. of the great... Back up a second. You could have a lawful party? <laughs> it was not unheard of. Theoretically. <laughs> wow. I'm going to have to try that. We're blowing his mind. All right. Well, let's move on then. Your dungeon master has placed you in a dreadfully precarious position. Where are the Cheetos? They're right next to you. Well, all you do is we play the characters we talked about earlier when we run around and stuff. I want to show you a trick Mother showed me when you weren't around. Use your lightning bolt. Victory is yours. I'm attacking the darkness. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons games. Products of your imagination. You're not there. You're getting drunk. Poe. Products of your imagination. Poe. Poe. Yeah, I need to make that up as a monster and put on the Save the Die page or something. The Poe. You should totally do that. It only ambushes parties at the very end of an adventure, you know, just before they they get out, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> you should totally do that. We're talking about a book by Jason Cohn called Philotomy's Musings. Do I have that pronounced right? Philotomy? As far as I know. Okay. Better than I can. Anyway, uh, since we're talking about old school and since Roll for Initiative already did Matt Finch's Old School Primer, I wanted to find something that was more classic D&D oriented um, that hadn't been covered. And I came across this little gem, and it I think it, he had originally started it as sort of maybe his house rules, and it ended up being more a commentaries on the original three Brown books. And... I found it pretty fun to read, as much for his views. I didn't always agree with them, but the way his views on certain rules and how they impacted play were. What was your first impressions, John? Yeah, I mean, I think it, I kind of read it, I think, the way you did. I mean, I saw this as largely in a trying to explain how you could approach OD&D. And let's, let's face it, OD&D is not very approachable on its own. I don't think anybody who found the OD&D booklets in a bus stop in you know, late 1974 would be able to take them home and play with, with his friends. Oh, without, gosh. Right, having the, the tutelage of s- someone who's experienced with the game. And really, when we look at what happened in the first years after D&D came out, a lot of it is Gygax personally going out and socializing this at conventions, putting up posters that he stands next to explaining what you do when you're running a game and how it's supposed to work. And it was that uh, proselytizing, I think, that really made such a, a huge community around it in the at least the, the, the wargaming fandom community. And so I, I see this as a set of rules that, yeah, it, it tries to explain to you, here's the components, here's the things you would need to, sem- to assemble to be able to play OD&D. And then here's a few of the most... Um, glaring emissions in the system <laughs> and ways that, that you could approach them. And I, I think he, he very fairly uh, tries to say that, you know, this is an interpretation and that OD&D didn't get this, didn't specify this either way. Here are some ideas about how you could do this. What, one that struck me was initiative, for example. Um, it's true that OD&D says nothing about initiative. Um, and, you know, you could imply from 
chainmail being referenced, no D and D. You could you can infer from that. Well, okay, maybe you should go by length of weapons <laughs> the way that the chainmail <laughs> does, right? There was a there's a weapon class that uh, actually did get, if I recall, uh, stuck into Greyhawk. Eventually, there are, there are some remnants of weapon class that made it back into that system, mm-hmm. but you know without. Without reference to that, there's really nothing to say about initiative until much later um, as official clarification. So just covering the glaring omissions like that while giving people a sense of here's the tools, here's what you need to know if you were approaching this game for the first time. So it was neat in that regard. Okay. Jim? I thought it was really interesting, and thank you for putting me onto this. Um, we love you, Matt Finch, but uh, I'd read Matt's thing, and I didn't, hadn't read this. The uh, I, I thought the most interesting thing about it was that his house rule system's reliance on the three little brown books and homes, but not the supplements. Although he did remark later that he had thieves in his campaign world, so there's that's a fuzzy line there. But I just thought that was the most in, that he considered homes basically just the same as the three little brown books i know i know liz likes that um oh, i was yeah. waiting for the cheer from oh yeah from liz. philotomy is obviously a gaming genius and, <laughs> and, and and yes and and and, and his, his sort of way of in the course of the book illustrating that it's not the rules of D that are difficult it was the presentation which i think mainly agrees with what john was saying i mean the oh yeah the uh even the first edition of metamorphosis alpha it's clearly written editorially in a stream of consciousness this is the order i thought of it so i'm gonna bang through the manuscript in this order with with i'm sure there was some editorial but not what we're used to in modern mm-hmm. rule sets so he gives you all these tools to like okay th- this is a great rule system here's implementation and i really like that and you know there are chunks of gold in there like the whole uh uh um, essay on the uh, abstraction of combat in OD&D. And that's, that, that, a version of that speech is one that I give all the time to, to, to new players. It's like, okay, let's just understand what we're doing here. And I know you love the stuff that's in there, like uh, um, called shots and critical hits. That all sounded to me exactly up your alley. Like, okay, you rolled a 20. You do full damage. Oh, yeah, I read through that, and his critical hit system is like, ah, that's mine! So obviously he's brilliant, like Liz said. <laughs> <laughs> so Liz, well, and oh, oh sorry, on, Liz. go ahead. What? Let's <laughs> <Liz>, go. Um, <laughs> well, I thought, you know, I, obviously I tend to agree with a lot of the things that he does. Um, as I tend to play, you know, I always did a merging of Holmes and the the OD and D supplements. Um, however, I kind of went the opposite direction because when I initially bought the box, the Holmes box, the only other booklets I could find were the supplements after the first three. So I had, you know, gods, demigods, and heroes, and, you know, the Greyhawk book, and, you know, I didn't have men and magic, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I kind of came at it from the opposite direction as Philotomy does here in the musings. But I think if I had had the three brown booklets in addition to the supplements, I probably would have still used the supplements. I really enjoyed having access to stats for gods, etc. And I found it really useful in moving up in levels past third for some of the other races and classes. Um, but yeah, there's. This is pretty close to 
what I have done or what I would want to do. Um, some things I don't necessarily agree with, like, say, the whole, I've never liked the demi-human, you know, elf fighter magic user. Okay, this time I'm a fighter, and then the next game session I play, I'm going to be a magic user. I mean, I Let can... put my pointy hat on. Yeah, yeah. I, I can see how you would want to do something like that in an attempt to keep that kind of character from being too powerful compared to the other PCs. But it just, it seems weird to me, it feels weird to me, and I've never liked it. Yeah. Um, but to well, be that, fair, well, he does a, say that even if your elf is playing as a magic user in this particular game session, he or she can still use any weapon. So I think that's kind of a nice, well, okay, you know. Well, here's an interesting question then. Sorry, John, let me ask her this. (laughs) Move to you. She's Um, actually talking. (laughs) (laughs) I already Um, went, so ask away, yeah. Okay. Um, You say it feels weird to you, and I agree, it feels weird to me too. Now, do you think that's because of an inherent problem with the rule? Or it's so against the grain with what we're used to. That's a good question. I I think it's a little of both. But to me, the whole concept of I can decide which set of my skills I am going to, you know, access today. And by making that decision, I am unable to access my other skills, which I normally would have. You know, it, I'm wearing my construction hat today, so I can't treat anyone with the medical kit. Exactly. You know, even no. though I have the ability to treat people with the medical kit, because I am wearing the construction hat, I am unable to do so. So try not to get hurt until tomorrow. Yes. <laughs> but if you want that ceiling braced, man. <laughs> okay. So I think... That is most of my problem with that. It just seems unrealistic. But like that being said, I can see why such a rule would have been made in the first place. Okay. I just don't care for it. <laughs> John? Well, just to that, I mean, uh, you know, I look back to Chainmail, right? Chainmail acknowledged that even though it only had heroes and wizards, it should be possible to have a combination figure. And it points actually to the character of Elric, who Mm -hmm. can cast spells and can apparently wear armor and wield this this quite potent sword when you get right down to it. Um, And, you know, it says there should be a possibility to have a combination figure like that in your game. And, yeah, I mean, the way they approached that in OD&D, um, I mean, I, I think it was purely a balance decision on their part. Um, I mean, this is before anyone had conceptualized multiclassing as we would consider today. And so, I mean, it was... Um, they were just reaching in the dark, trying to, well, let's try this. Maybe this will limit him. Yeah, and, um, you know, there were a lot of things that they were, you know, the, the racial limits on level advancement at the time, um, you know, were another example that was extremely unpopular with the community. I mean, a lot of what I actually read in Philodomy is things that, like critical hits, were popular in the community and very contrary to what Gary Guy Hacks personally thought people should be doing. So, mm-hmm. I think it's a very old school to 
take what you saw in baseline OD&D and hack it up into something and just say, you know, yeah, I know what it says in Greyhawk. I know what it says in the Blackmore pamphlet and all that. That stuff's great. But, you know, I designed this stuff earlier and I think what I'm doing now is better and my group's going to stick with that. Maybe pick and choose some things from these new pamphlets, but uh, I'm going to go with my own rules. So Liz is is being perfectly old school by calling bullshit. I'll do it this way. (laughs) Very much so. Okay. Speaking of the... um, racial level limits uh one of the things philotomy puts in there is since he taps his game out at 10th level having racial level limits aren't as upsetting at least to his players as they would be otherwise do you think that's that once you start going up to 36 level that's when you know the idea of racial level limits really sticks in people's craws I'm prejudiced. Oh, 36, I mean. <laughs> well, I say 36, but, you know, basically, if you're only, if everybody stops at 10, being limited at 7 isn't quite as bad as everybody stops at 30 and you're, you're still stuck at 7, you know? I mean, a lot of it, I think, comes down to, especially for spellcasters, what you're locked out of. Um, mm-hmm. That there are just spells that are desirable that you're never going to be able to get because of a, a level cap. And it also seems kind of unfair, I think, when all of your friends around the table are continuing to advance and you are not. Yeah. I and, understood I mean, why not just, you know, kind of what Holmes did, you know, just make it more XP to advance than than sticking a cap on it because that'll be the balancer. You'll be behind because of simple XP awards, but you don't feel like you're you're locked out with a glass ceiling or something. But what, wasn't Holmes capped at three? <laughs> well, Everybody yeah. capped at three. Fair cop, fair cop. I, I, I think it's interesting because you guys have both shared in prior podcasts that you don't have a big desire to play a campaign much past 10th level. I don't. I don't. I, I personally don't I found care. It, but... and, I, and I'm kind of okay with his level cap. And, and we did play AD&D up into the you know high teens, early 20s. Back, oh, back yeah, in the day. back in the day. Um, I don't think I played higher than 14th or 15th level since the early 90s, I think. I think he's got a point. about Because what he said in that section about his level cap, in many ways, matches exactly Joseph Goodman's philosophy in DCC. He's like, okay, it, there's 10 levels, and at level 10 in, in this rule system, you're practically a demigod, so don't worry about it. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I mean, and obviously Gygax himself was extremely concerned about the level inflation problem that he saw in the community. And for him, it, it was a practical problem to some degree. If you're going to publish a module, right? if you're going to publish G1, you've just started putting out modules, and people out there in the community, you know, they want to play characters that are 50th level, 100th level, 500th level. No joke, you were seeing this, you know, at UCLA. There was a group that had leveled up. There were people who were nearing a thousandth level. Dungeon and Beavers? Yes, right, exactly. So, I mean, <laughs> the, you know, these, I mean, these were, you know, Gary wanted to draw a line in the sand and say, look, there are levels of advancement that are compatible with the rules that we're designing. And then there's levels of advancement that just have no, no place in the book. So, a line is drawn somewhere. Even though there is this kind of fantasy of perpetual self-improvement that is built into D&D, I think you know, it, it took about 10 minutes for everyone to realize that that just wasn't going to work. And you had to have some kind of a practical limit on how, mm-hmm. how powerful people could get. And I've noticed that computer games, and I'm not just 
talking about today, I mean back in the 80s. You know, it seemed like a lot of computer games would allow you to get to 50th or 100th level. And that always struck me as bizarre when I was playing D&D and stuff. It's like, why is it? Why do they let you go up so high? It's, it's just human nature. There's always the push and pull tension between the two. Uh, we were talking about World of Warcraft. The level cap at World of Warcraft, when it started, John was like, what, 40? 60. 60, okay, and now it's 90. So, you know. Yeah. Always but, want to get something else. Players but got, it, you know, players got to be are, players. Yeah, rewards are much more incremental in these systems, I think, is what you'll find. I mean, I think that the, the divisions between levels are much more incremental and... Um, the, the the game has been scaled to meet that, but I mean the the problem I think Gary was confronting is he wants to sell G one to people who play D and D, and if some people play D and D and D in such a way that they rarely get above eighth level, and some people play it where they're seven hundred fiftieth level, well, who what does he design, right? <laughs> does right. he produce a module for characters that are seven hundred fiftieth level or seventh level? And he mm-hmm. wanted to have enough standardization that he'd be able to make more rule books, make more spells, make more modules that would the community would actually accept. Okay. And rightly so. Well, before we actually hit this with some dragons, though, there's one thing I would like to get everybody's opinion on. He really doesn't like... Philotomy really doesn't like the thief. He says it is a self-perpetuating class, and as I've mentioned on the show before especially in Holmes's uh, stories, or whether it's the ones he had in Dragon or Maze of Peril or whatnot, everybody in the party seemed to be going around with 10-foot poles or searching for traps and stuff. So, do you think that the thief was the solution to a problem that really wasn't there to begin with? John? Well, so, again, you ask an historian where, where a thief came from, and I'll tell you very... <laughs> <laughs> right? So, I mean, there, there was a comedian in California, and there was actually a guy named Gary Switzer who called Gary Gygax in around May of 1974 and related, hey, in our club out here around Santa Monica, uh, we're playing with this new class, and th- these are roughly what its constraints are. And Gary wrote up some rules for that, which he socialized through a fanzine and actually released a Gen Con in 74 as well, before they ended up in Greyhawk the following year. I think at the time, you know, Gary had asked the community, Tell, don't let us do any more of your imagination for, for you, right? This is like the, the end of uh, the, the third D&D book. He kind of makes a, a plea to the community to contribute, to send him rules and so on. And so when he got this call, you know, he saw no other class beside the original three had ever been proposed. He saw something that looked different enough. It looked like, you know, it didn't fit with the niches of any of the existing classes. It had real precedence in fantasy fiction. It was Bilbo. It was Kujal the Clever, um, probably even more than Bilbo. Grey Mouser, yeah. Grey Mouser. Um, I mean, Kujal, if I had to pick anybody, I'd guess it was him. But, you know, that, um, because he was so tied to the precedence of fantasy fiction and because he was so committed to interfacing with this new community and getting people on board with the ideas they were coming up with, I think it was natural for him to put it into the rules. And once he did, people loved it. And you cannot find a game that came out after this, practically speaking, that it doesn't have some concept like it. I mean, Channels and Trolls already appropriated it, you know, by the time it came out. Um, you play a game like World of Warcraft today, and Rogue is one of the yeah. major damage healing classes in it. So, I mean, regardless of what our opinion is of its, you know, probity or what have you, I mean, it's been tremendously, profoundly successful, and 
I'm sure that the reason why it was adopted initially is precisely that. It, it filled a niche that didn't previously exist, that had a clear precedent in the fantasy fiction that D&D was supposed to simulate. Yeah, um, I've always felt that way myself, but after reading Philotomy's book, I've wondered, you know, I wonder what it would be like to run a game where it was, there were no thieves and just let anybody search for mechanical traps and do all that sort of stuff. It seems to me it would, like, for instance, make a dwarf much more useful with their ability with sl sloping passages and stonework. I was just wondering, what do you think, Jim? I, th I see the appeal of what he wrote, especially to guys like you and me, because it makes perfect game mechanics sense. But I got to side with John. I mean, you're talking about a mythic archetype there that's seminal to all fantasy literature and, and, and beyond. I mean, without rogues and thieves, you don't have Han Solo. You don't have the mythic sidekick that every hero needs to have. And it's hard to make a wizard or a cleric your sidekick if you're a fighter. So it's it's got to be in there. Okay. Liz? Uh, I tend to agree. Um, I think it would be interesting as a one-off to, you know, try a a small campaign in a world that did not have the thief class. I don't think that I would want to take that as my standard way of playing or of running a game. I, okay. I tend to like the thief. All right. <laughs> I think you know, it like, serves a purpose. We were talking about the seven voyages of Xylarth in a few episodes back, and his uh, take on the OD&D rules was to do away with clerics and just give healing spells to wizards. I'd be more in favor of that than I would excising the thief. Okay. Well, you all make great points. And that's what Tunnels points. and Trolls did, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> you all make great points. And you're all wrong. <laughs> 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 just kidding. I can't do the McLaughlin thing. <laughs> All right, well, any final comments on this little gem before we start awarding dragons? No, I think I'm good. We're all good then. Okay, well, we'll start with you, Liz. Oh, yay! <laughs> That's what happens when you speak up. Ah, oh, I should have stayed in the back and kept my head down. Ah, <laughs> oh, well, I think it's, it is a great read. Um, I love the information presented. I love the clear and thoughtful way that he does so. Um, and like I've said, I, I tend to agree with a large number, not everything, but with a large number of you know his points as far as playing with OD&D slash Holmes. Um, any gripes that I would have about the product at all? are, you know, purely visual. Um, I think a little more could have been done, but, you know, granted, this is not being created to sell to people. You know, this is just being put out there. So I don't feel that it's fair to be judging it on, well, I think the kerning's a little too tight, you know, or blah, blah, blah. Um, so I, I would give this... I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be really nice. I'm gonna give this four point five dragons. Ooh, all right, Jim. Well, you know my rule for giving five dragons is that mm -hmm. it has to be something I can't find any way I could do better personally myself. So I'm given that if you're running O D and D and want this as a a way to do it, and given that it's free, I have to go with five dragons on this. I mean, if it Ooh. was if it was as much as a two dollar PDF. I, I would go to 4.5, but I'm going to give it a 5. Okay. John? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a critic. <laughs> so, I mean, it's very difficult for me to assess this. And in part because, you know, so many of the historical things it talks about, so it talks about OD&D, like I know why things are the way that they are. And it, it's just because I did things that no sane person would do to try to figure them out. <laughs> um, and so I, I'm, I'm the worst person to ask in some respects, but I definitely think that this is something, if you were starting in OD&D for the first time, be profoundly valuable to you. And, you know, there, there aren't very many things in there other than things I would just nitpick about a little that I think um, may, maybe miscast OD&D. So, I mean, for me, I'd say it's a solid four. I think it's a, it's a great book. People should, people should use it. Okay. <laughs> well, normally I would then try to not award above 3.5 in order to maintain my rep as the hard ass of the group. But I think I'm going to go with a four as well. Um, I think it's a nice way of not only understanding some of the way w things were set up in OD&D, certainly a lot easier than actually reading the three books. I don't agree with all of his interpretations, but I think several of them are plausible. And, you know, you can't beat free. So I think if anybody, especially anybody who has started playing D&D &D over the past 20, 15, 20 years or less, wants to look at OD&D &D and say, you know, I want to see what, you know, that's all about. I think you should have this for read this first before going into the three brown books and the supplements. You'll be glad you did. If you don't get a copy of Holmes first, right, Liz? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I think it's funny how uh, John and perhaps even you uh, adhere to Jim's rule of five dragons because you gave it four because you could do better. Well, I don't know. I don't know that I would flatter myself. I think I do. I don't think that I can do better. I think I give it four, and I think it's overall utility. I think it's very good if you're looking to create either a specifically OD&D game or a general, really old school '70s feel type game. Um, do I think it's good for all people and all things? No. So, but you know, this podcast is about classic D and D. So I think. Are even people with you know Beck me or rules cyclopedia could find something pretty useful out of this thing, but anyway, that's seventeen point five divided by four four point two five something like <laughs> four ish ish ish. It's like well, we had two fours and two four point fives, didn't we? No, Jim was a five. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll drop it to four point five if no, it no, makes no, no. it. <laughs> So that's 17.5 divided by 4, 16, so 4.3 and some change. So get a copy. I will have a link on the show notes to where you can pick up a copy of the PDF for free. Uh, his blog is no longer around, but I've got some links to some associated blogs that keep some of his information up. So, Well, the link to the document will absolutely be on the webpage. Definitely. All right. Which ends us another episode, walking down the dusty road of old schoolness toward whatever school is in the horizon. Yeah, I wonder if it's ever going to be like modern and postmodern, if we're going to reach a role playing where it's old school, new school, and post new school. I hope so, because that'll give John another excuse to write a new book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He needs the excuses. <laughs> yeah, I sure now, do. Yeah. Get back to research. <laughs>
Yeah, right. I know. It's what I get most often is, you know, yeah, you wrote this great book. What have you done for me lately? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we pay you the huge bucks. Yeah, yeah. That's right. It's like, yeah, you can get that new book out in like, what, a month or so? Here. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Playing at the World took, what, a month and a half? Yeah, yeah. 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 So how are we heading down the road? Liz. Um, I'm sleepwalking down the road. <laughs> Bless your heart. I have no idea where I'm going or what's going to happen when I get there. But Dreaming about a life after a graphic arts degree. <laughs> there is no life after a graphic arts degree. <laughs> All right, Jim. I'm going down the road with my 10-foot pole, 100-foot of rope, mirror, and eight flasks of oil, hoping I don't take a critical hit to the backpack. <laughs> cool. John? I, I will be exiting the most old-school way that I can remember, which is by ascending a seemingly infinite staircase, opening the door at the top, then falling hundreds of feet into Blackmore Bay, where I probably drown. Oh! Hooray! <laughs> <laughs> Roll up a new guy! Well, I would have walked down the, the dirt road, but... In an old, in a true method of old school, I inadvertently hit a teleport point. So, Lord, I'm probably on the Starship Warden right now, fighting Killer Rope. <laughs> That's good. But I have a light spell, so it's okay. After an ogre, what can these do, right? Exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, John Peterson, for coming on the show. We appreciate it. Always great to have you on and have your opinions voiced. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's my pleasure to come back. If you ever want to be a permanent host, one of us will just quit and make a spot for you. <laughs> yeah, it'll probably be me. <laughs> and oh, she won't notice because she'll we be asleep. You. I will be asleep and no one will know. <laughs> Never know. You just have to do like Vince used to do when he was on the show and he'd just go, Hi, I'm Liz. <laughs> well, maybe we'll do that on the 100th. I think it needs to be done. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And next episode, The Big 100. See ya. Bye-bye. Bye. Free <laughs> arc. And we're out. The Saber Die Podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with D20Radio.com. The Saber Die theme music is provided by the band Mississippi Bones. You can find them mississippibones.bandcamp.com Old School Renaissance and all associated trademarks are copyrighted by absolutely no one. OSRgaming.org Yeah, Vince owns that one. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Save or Die!